welcome back to From My Mom's Basement, the podcast recorded directly from my mom's basement. I'm your host, David Chamberlain, and this is episode 17 of the podcast, entitled If We Were Like Trees, written by myself. Thank you all for listening. I am tired. I can't seem to sleep. Tomorrow looks like another long day. Mom is doing worse than usual. Her condition is dropping off. The doctors say that she has lost almost all functional ability. I bet they're going to put her on more meds. She's already on enough pills as it is. They make her speech all sloppy and hard to understand. I get the impression that her mind is completely absent while she is on them, like the complex parts of her personality pack up and hit the road, leaving her to act clumsy and slow and infantile. Who knows, though? Maybe this is a blessing. Maybe her mind is so damaged and sick that her being tranquilized is a net benefit for herself and all those who interact with her. That is a sad notion to think about, isn't it? She has been very sick most of her life, my mom. Not sick in the body, sick in the mind. She suffers from a kind of nuanced mixture of mental disorders, things I would rather not get into, things I would rather not describe. But, like many people who suffer from profound mental illness, my mom does not face a single mental disorder, but rather a whole gang of disorders who reinforce one another in very negative ways. They compound on each other, support each other, work together like a team of synchronized swimmers, filling in each other's gaps in an ingenious and terrible fashion, making her do and say things that people might find odd, if not disturbing. When I was a child, I never understood what people meant when they told me she was sick. She seemed strong and sturdy and very healthy. She ran three miles almost every morning, cooked my father and me dinner almost every evening, and never seemed to have a cough or a runny nose. I can't even recall her sneezing. She wasn't, by my childish metrics, sick in any way, shape, or form. She was, to me, the very standard of well-being, the very picture of health. If anyone was sick, it was my father, who groaned in pain as he rose in the morning and as he retired for sleep in the evening, and who wore heavy bags under his eyes almost perpetually. He also smoked like a chimney, two and a half packs a day, always Newports. But then there was the incident at my Little League basketball game. I was eight years old. The exact setting of the memory is a little foggy, but the sounds are still very clear to me. I remember the sound of the referee's whistle as it screeched across the gym. I remember the sound of the basketball as its leather membrane slapped against the hardwood. And I remember the sound of my mom screaming. The game stopped as the screaming rang out, and I, who was standing beneath my opponent's basket, turned to see my mom, courtside, holding her jacket over her head as if caught in a downpour, and screaming for her life. They were dark screams. They were screams that tear your vocal cords. They were the screams of someone facing an imminent death, the screams of a parent who has lost their child. The game was cut short, and my mom was ushered outside by my father. And although everyone in the gym was staring at him as he led my mom outside, he showed no signs of humiliation or disgrace. His face was stern and dignified. Later that night, my father told me, in a vague, paternal way, that my mom had become frightened of the basketball, 
of the loud noises it made. I began to understand the exact characteristics of her illness after that, and I learned the true extent of her sickness when, one summer night, my father had to rush my mom to the hospital, leaving me alone. My father wouldn't let me see my mom as he lifted her limp body into our car. All he said was she had hurt herself and that she needed a doctor. But based on the fear in my father's voice, my mom needed more than a doctor. She needed a miracle. I didn't sleep that night. And even after she was brought home safe and healed, I had trouble sleeping. I still have trouble sleeping. I don't think I have slept well since that night. I can still see my father stuffing her loose body into the passenger seat, like a mess of dirty laundry into a washing machine. After the night my mom hurt herself, things changed in my house, both in an invisible, emotional sense, and in a physical, environmental sense. Weird locks and latches appeared on cupboards and drawers in the kitchen. The medicine cabinet got a shiny new padlock, and my father ran a kind of makeshift ventilation system into the garage. I didn't know what to make of those things at the time, but now I know them for what they were. Not just safety precautions to protect my mom, but precautions to protect my father's peace of mind. My father loved my mom very much. He didn't love her in spite of her sickness. He just loved her, every dark and mangled piece of her. And yet, I can't begin to imagine the terror he must have felt every second of every day. Each morning when he left for work, he kissed my mom with the fearful passion of a soldier who was leaving his love for battle. He knew, however unimaginable, that any day could be the day he came home to find her dead. I know that he pictured himself, just like I did, walking into their bedroom or bathroom and stumbling upon her lifeless body. The thing my father loved most dearly in this world was trying to destroy itself was falling apart right before his eyes. He had a front row seat to witness his wife's own self-inflicted destruction. But when, even after years of torment, medication, and hospital visits, my mom's condition worsened, my father never showed any signs of indignance or bitterness. He never lost morale or revealed the heartache that I know he must have been feeling. His one purpose in life was the continual and total support of my mom. And as long as she was still alive and kicking, he not only had his purpose, he had hope. Around the time of my final year in college, my mom became almost entirely uncoupled from reality. The things she saw, the words she said, they had no relation to the material world. Her mind was fabricating events, creating completely imaginary narratives. These false creations were often vivid and complex, but lacked a certain logical foundation like dreams whose characters and actions seem grounded and real, but whose basic premises are off-kilter, if not entirely absurd. It was during this time that I saw the most swift and drastic decline in my mom's mental health. She rarely left her bedroom, and the nights were invariably filled with the sounds of her manic ranting and my father's gentle voice trying to soothe her, trying to pull her away from whatever scenario was being manufactured by her sick mind. And then came the night over the Christmas holidays. I woke up to the sound of footsteps thundering past my room. They were fast and chaotic, moving like a child playing tag. But these footsteps were not a child's. They were heavy and consequential and shook the floor. 
I stepped out of my room and into the hallway, where I found a trail of blood leading from my parents' bedroom to the front door. Perfect maroon medallions of blood, evenly spaced like a trail of candy delicately placed on the floor, ran the entire length of my house. I followed the trail to the front door and onto the front porch where I found two silhouettes frantically dancing around my front yard. I saw, in the orange haze of a street lamp, the glimmer of metal. One of the silhouettes was holding a knife. The other was desperately trying to retrieve it. The shadowy figures danced around the yard in a kind of grotesque ballet, moving in frantic revolutions around each other, one reaching, the other slashing. My mom had gotten hold of a steak knife and was trying to harm herself, my father, or everyone at once. I remember there being an eerie lack of noise. Other than their gasps for air, their grunting, and the sound of their feet crunching against snow, it was silent. No one was screaming or yelling or shouting. I almost wish they had been. You always know fights are serious when the arguing stops and the only sound you hear is the labored breathing of the combatants. Eventually, fortunately, my mom slipped on some ice, crashing hard onto her back and losing her grip on the steak knife. My father immediately leapt on her body with a kind of indifferent, cold brutality. He acted as though he were a police officer, and not my mom's husband. Our neighbor's Santa Claus and reindeer decorations watched my father as he lifted my mom up in a tight bear hug and brought her back inside the house. As he walked into the light spilling from the front door, my mom's legs kicking and flailing, I saw a bright red gash running down the length of my father's face. Blood was all over him. He brushed past me as he walked inside, saying nothing, and took my mom into their bedroom. They were both in their pajamas. I stepped off the front porch and out into the snow, barefoot. I collected the bloody steak knife that had been forgotten on the ground. Blood was all over the snow. Little clusters of red stood out against a layer of white, like cherries on a vanilla sundae. Shortly after that incident, my father made the most difficult decision of his life. With not only the approval, but the serious admonishment from her doctors, my father sent my mom off to live in an institution to live in a place that no more than 50 years before had been called an asylum. The psychiatric hospital, in which my mom has been interned for nearly 20 years, was conceived and created back in the 19th century, when physicians of the Western world began seeking new ways to heal who they then called the insane. As such, the hospital is far away from any urban center or major roadway a location counter to what most quote-unquote ordinary hospitals might deem necessary. The hospital sits like a founding father's colonial mansion, all proud and alone, surrounded by lush lawns and trees. A small pond, the home to many kinds of waterfowl and willow trees, sits behind the hospital. On good days, there are swans. The principle that guides most hospitals to be built in population centers that of being able to diagnose and heal injury in a quick and timely manner does not work as an important function here. The patients at my mom's hospital are not expecting a sudden cure for their maladies. They do not expect any kind of reprieve. They are not rushed inside the hospital by family members or EMTs who wear urgent, terrified expressions. The patients brought into my mom's hospital are kind of corralled out of their caretaker's car and led into the hospital slowly and awkwardly like a sedated animal being led into a zoo. 
Sometimes they meander around outside the entrance, sort of wandering around in circles like a zombie. You can tell they don't want to go inside, but you can also tell they are unsure why they don't want to go inside. Their minds are so clouded with either medication or illness that the only objectionary action they can muster is to kind of loiter around outside the front entrance of the facility, neither running away or going inside. They stand around like dumb, emotionless children who can't articulate their fears or concerns. The patient's caretakers, like cautionary zookeepers, do not physically coerce the patients inside, only coax them by waving their arms and using encouraging words. Eventually, the patients acquiesce and hobble inside, their heads stooped. Rarely have I seen patients brought in by ambulance or medical personnel. My mom's room in the hospital is quaint and comfortable, but there are far too many similarities between it and a prison cell for it to be a preferred way of living. Her room sits at the end of a long, open corridor, a hallway much too long and wide to be in any modern healthcare facility. Modern function and efficiency would have mandated the corridor out of existence and in its place added more patient rooms. There are many little hints like this in my mom's hospital, architectural clues that indicate when the building was built. Some of these clues are charming, others are almost haunting. Fortunately, however, unlike the building, the medical workers are not from a former time period. There are no nurse ratchets in my mom's hospital. There are no more nurses with white smocks and hats and physicians who roam the corridors in long white cloaks bearing Clark Gable mustaches. In fact, the modernity of the healthcare workers is almost startling. They look like transplants, like time travelers who have fallen into the hospital from another century. It is interesting to see the young nurses wear their Apple watches and their Adidas sneakers and march down hardwood flooring that was installed before their grandparents were born. I like these young and healthy doctors and nurses and orderlies. They help make the hospital feel new and effective. They breathe life into the old institution. They keep the old, dark memories of the hospital at bay. And make no mistake, there are dark memories burned into the walls of my mom's hospital. Unthinkable traumas stained in the brick and mortar. You can feel them. Sometimes, when I leave the facility at night, I understand why so many ghost stories and tales of the paranormal have been created with psych wards as their principal character. It is very easy to look down those long, dark corridors and feel the tormented energy of sick souls, both past and present, bubbling up into the air. The energy is palpable, so present and thick it's almost edible. You can taste it, smell it. It's on those nights when I'm leaving the institution alone that I understand why, in biblical times, people sought out Jesus of Nazareth to cast out their demons. Mental illness is hard to understand, hard to explain, and things that cannot be explained can turn dark and malevolent in our minds, can become an evil presence, something that only faith or divine power can seemingly cleanse and wash away. There was a change in my father after my mom was sent away. However imperceptible, it was there. I think it was then he finally realized that his rough and calloused hands were useless in the fight for my mom's sanity. His strong will and pure love could do nothing to ease my mom's illness. With my mom gone, he started to wander the house with a kind of nervous despair. He was the star player on my mom's team, the one that could do anything, the one that could beat any opponent. No matter how badly they were being beaten, 
No matter what the opposing team had hidden up their sleeves, my father would save my mother, rally her, usher her to victory. But for this particular game, my father was sidelined, relegated to the bench where he had to watch his wife get beaten and battered and destroyed by a ruthless and cruel adversary. Whenever I came home to visit him, he was working on something. Maybe he was in the yard pulling weeds, or lying belly up under the kitchen sink, fiddling with a faulty pipe. A kind of frustrated expression was permanently stamped on his face, as if he were constantly being inconvenienced by one little thing or another. But he never spoke bitterly of anything. He only ever used hopeful words. He was never angry. And, until his death, he visited my mom every single weekend. On sunny days, they picnicked out on the sprawling lawns that surrounded the hospital. A picture of them eating tuna fish sandwiches hangs on my refrigerator, even as I write this. The photo was taken over a decade ago now. I don't believe it has been that long. It feels like I took that photo last week. But the little orange numbers in the corner of the photo display the exact day it was taken, leaving no room for my chronological doubts. Although they are both smiling in the photo, my mom and father, there is a sadness and exhaustion in their eyes, a kind of overwhelming gloom that crawls out from the silence of the photo and urges you to look away. You get the idea that something is very wrong, even if the problem is invisible. Sometimes I think the photo is like something out of the haunted mansion, and that if I look at it from the right angle I might be able to glimpse the true, terrifying nature of the subjects in the photograph. I have yet to prove this hypothesis. My father is gone now. We lost him to a stroke. My mom cried when she heard the news. It was one of the few times I ever saw her break down as a result of a real stimulus, and not because of a figment manufactured by her sick mind. She really did try to love him as best she could, given the circumstances. I'm all she has left now. Well, it's just my wife and me. I have no siblings and only two cousins of whom I speak to rarely, if ever. The severity of my mom's illness didn't reveal itself until two or three years after I was born, and, in an attempt to spare anyone else from having to endure a life of mental anguish and torment, my parents decided to throw in the baby-making towel. Unfortunately, I was already born, and there are no manufacturer recalls on children. Fortunately, however, I have not been endowed with my mom's profound illness, at least, not that I know of. But I do live with the knowledge that those same genes are lurking somewhere in my DNA, floating around within me like unactivated sleeper agents. And I do understand that, if my wife and I ever do decide to have kids, I could inadvertently bestow them with one of nature's worst genetic gifts. And, like a dormant volcano that is silent for a generation, my mom's illness could erupt in one of our children, wreaking havoc on them and everyone close to them. My wife was never reluctant to have children, even after I explained to her my mom's condition, that is, until she met my mom in person. Sadly, they did not meet until after our wedding. In all honesty, I never wanted my wife to meet her. No matter how perverted that notion may seem, it is the truth. In my heart, I knew that a meeting between them was necessary, but like a formidable school assignment, I put that unsavory thought in the back of my mind, reassuring myself that I would tackle the task at some later, unspecified date. I would never let their meeting grow beyond an abstract thought or idea. When my wife asked about my mom, I made excuses, flimsy school-age excuses as to why they couldn't meet.
But six months after our marriage, my wife and I found some free time in our perpetually busy schedules, and I knew it would be a crime to procrastinate the visit any longer. A painful guilt was growing in me, and I knew it would be an unforgivable sin, something that would torture me in this life and possibly the next if I didn't allow my mom to meet my wife. On the day of their meeting, we found my mom in the arts and crafts room of the hospital, which, for more than 50 years, had been used as an operating room where frontal lobotomies were carried out. People's consciousnesses were removed in that arts and crafts room. Their humanity stirred and scrambled up like eggs for breakfast. Today, the room is a windowless cube, decorated like an elementary school classroom, and was a place where my mom, before her condition declined, spent most of her time. She was huddled over a desk when we found her, drawing something with non-toxic markers. Her fingers looked like a kindergartner's, all dotted and streaked with colorful ink, and she was mumbling to herself in incoherent phrases, sometimes barking or humming like a lawnmower engine. Her hair wasn't brushed and looked blown out on end like she was a cartoon character that had been struck by lightning. She hardly acknowledged our presence. I felt an indescribable humiliation. Something so intense and personal that it burrowed deep inside of me like a parasite. And still, to this day, has yet to leave. There I was, introducing my wife to my mom, to the woman who had conceived me, raised me, and this woman of whom 50% of myself is comprised, was behaving like a disturbed child. I was so angry so full of shame. If only my wife could have met my mom when she was younger, if only she could have seen what she was, what she had been capable of. My wife never got to meet my real mom. Only the sad residue left by her illness, the remaining fragments of a broken and defeated soul. On the way home from the hospital, I told my wife that it wasn't my mom's fault, the way she acted and behaved. My wife was incredulous, offended, She told me that she knew my mom had no control over her illness, that her behavior was no indication of her true self or worth. But I could see, could feel, that seeds of uncertainty and confusion had been planted in my wife, seeds that would grow and blossom into complex feelings of doubt and fear. She would never tell me, but I knew my wife was disturbed by what she saw in my mom. Talk of children decreased after that day and I haven't pushed the subject since. This, as far as I can tell, is one of the greatest problems of mental illness. A kind of supernatural aura surrounds the subject, leading people to veer away from talking of the afflictions and the afflicted themselves as if those things hold some supernal power. In my experience, people talk about the mentally ill in the same way they talk about abandoned houses or black cats crossing the road, with a kind of superstitious flair like they may run into some kind of malicious consequence for even mentioning such things. Unlike breaking a bone, contracting pneumonia, or getting diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, the explanation for the mentally ill's suffering does not accurately measure up to their aberrant or even demented behavior. This is why in the past we have thought the mentally ill were possessed by evil entities, or were being manipulated by some cosmic power. This is why we threw them in asylums, or prisons, or in some dire cases, burnt them at the stake. And this is why today, even in the age of modern medicine, we believe the afflicted have some agency over their behavior, that they are still somehow culpable for their actions. How could someone behave in such an odd manner, if not by choosing to do so? 
Mental disorders are unlike cancer or heart disease or chronic back pain in that you cannot openly speak of your affliction and expect to receive immediate, unrestrained sympathy in the way you might from disclosing the fact that you have cancer or arthritis. More common mental ailments, things like anxiety and depression, elicit a universal eye roll when spoken about, a kind of who-are-you-kidding mentality. While more rare and damaging mental disorders, illnesses like my mom's, incite fear and dread when spoken of. In both cases, the disorders are misunderstood and treated as illogical or even unreal. Physiological maladies work in ways that are logical to us, acting in terms of cause and effect. A cancer cell mutates and metastasizes and overwhelms its host, killing it. This makes sense. In fact, this is medical mundanity. But my mom's illness encouraged her to kill herself multiple times. There was no tumor that incited this behavior. There is no formation of malignant cells, blood pressure issue, heart valve problem, or blood sugar discrepancy that compels someone to swallow a bunch of pills or slit their wrists or drop a toaster in the bathtub. The best explanation my father and I ever received for my mom's behavior were the words chemical imbalance. There were also words like serotonin and norepinephrine and dopamine. Words that did not work as a satisfactory explanation for my mom's illness. Words that left much to be desired. Words that sound more like an explanation for a dirty swimming pool or acidic tap water than for something that causes you to think a basketball is going to hurt you or that you need to end your life. And it is in this discrepancy between the explanation for the disorder and the unsettling expression of the disorder itself that the mystery of mental illness resides. And where there is mystery, there is the unknown. And where there is the unknown, there is fear and stigmatization. I love my mom, but on that day I brought my wife to meet her. I couldn't help but dislike and even fear her. The way she spoke in hushed, paranoid tones repulsed me, angered me. I couldn't understand why she had to behave that way, why her medication seemed to be so ineffectual. With any luck... The new cocktail of meds the doctors are planning on administering to my mom will prove beneficial. I guess I'll go and find out tomorrow. Like I said, tomorrow is going to be another long day. There will be unpleasant meetings with doctors and my mom and the always dreadful experience of being in a mental hospital where even I, who am familiar with all mental illness has to throw at you, feel an oppressive, almost suffocating feeling, as if by entering the premises of the hospital, I am liable to contract the contagion responsible for all mental disorders. This thought is, of course, ridiculous. But the longer I am confined to that old and haunted place, the more I feel susceptible, vulnerable, to the plague that afflicts those poor souls who live in that hospital. Hopefully the meeting with the doctors will be brief. I'm sure they'll just be putting my mom on some new, heavy-duty tranquilizers, Meds that will basically turn her into a breathing baked potato. It seems the only way the doctors can suppress her symptoms is by suppressing her entire being. Not a very sophisticated method, if you ask me. Many people with undiagnosed mental issues already follow this method of treatment by self-medicating with alcohol and black market narcotics. But my mom's inebriation is sanctioned by healthcare professionals and the state, so it must be good. I am writing all of this now because I can't sleep. Like I said, I have trouble sleeping. Rather than wake my wife up with all my tossing and turning, I thought it best to come out here to my kitchen and write something down, 
to kind of cleanse my mind, to burn off some dead wood. I am very nervous about this visit tomorrow. My mom's caretakers have told me, in not so many words, that she is on the home stretch, that any day now could foreseeably be her last. She could leave us at any moment. This means that tomorrow may be my last visit to see her in that old hospital she's holed up in. This thought makes me sick, makes my vision go blurry. The only consolation I have is the fact that death might bring my mom some solace, might return her to a peace that she hasn't known since childhood, or even before then. But even so, her life will not end quickly. It will end in a slow, undignified manner, like a flashlight that dims over time and then flickers and twitches to darkness. I heard an interesting fact about human brains once. It was a long time ago now. I I can't remember where I heard it. It might have been from a friend or a radio program or maybe something I completely made up. Essentially, the fact goes something like this. Half the reason human minds are so complex is due to the fact that humans are mobile creatures. Nomadic, even. Our brains are designed to encounter new environments, analyze them, map them out, and then adapt to them accordingly. We have the ability to make little ad hoc adjustments to our way of living that allow us to live in perfect synchronicity with whatever environment we happen to fall into. We need to have some pretty advanced cognitive hardware to do this. Our early ancestors were nomadic people, constantly encountering new environments and constantly rewiring their cognition to fit the new landscape. Even today when you move to a new state or city or country or just a new apartment, you have to readjust, readapt. You have to learn where the laundry machines are, learn where the nearest grocery store is, and learn how your shower faucet works. The brain power and nuance required to accomplish these tasks is nothing to laugh at, but some people say that mental illness is born out of this nuance and complexity, and that sometimes the wiring in your brain can get all twisted up and confused because of all that complex brain gunk. Some of us have to pay a heavy toll for our advanced brain mechanics. Sometimes I wonder what life would be like if we were like trees. If our bodies grew straight up out of the ground and our feet were permanently attached to the soil, stretching out beneath the ground like roots. Maybe then we wouldn't have to deal with all that high brain nonsense that turns people ill. Maybe then we would be free from all neuroticism and anxiety and chemical imbalance. Maybe then we would always be near to our loved ones, our family and we would never be sent away to live in strange, unhappy places with dark memories etched into the walls. Maybe then we would be free of all thought and worry and sadness, and we could just bask in the sunlight and wave in the wind and think of absolutely nothing. I have to sleep now. Thank you for listening. That was entitled, If We Were Like Trees. This episode was written, edited, narrated, and produced by myself, with the music being by Kevin McLeod. Thank you so much for listening.